Let's turn to Luke 15. If you found it, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word. Luke 15, I'll read verses 1 through 10. Two of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. If only time permitted, I would have thrown in the third and final parable in this chapter, the parable of the prodigal son, but we'll have to put that on the shelf for another time. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1, Luke writes, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. And they said, This man, Jesus, receives sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says, come on, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He tells another parable, beginning in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds the coin? And when she found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, and she says, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for our senior pastor. And especially this day, we thank you for the precious, gracious, godly, kind, caring, loving, generous, exemplary helpmate you've given him in Connie. And we ask, oh God, that you would have mercy on her, that you would heal her, and that you would bring the Presleys back quickly. So now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, it's the reason we're here, I ask, oh God, that you would do what I cannot, and that's open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, soften hardened hearts. Oh God, I pray that we would taste and see that you are good as you've revealed yourself in these two memorable parables. I ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, there's one word in this parable that should grieve you. There's a word in this text that should disturb you. It should strike you in an uncomfortable sense. The late, great Dr. W.A. Criswell, the famed pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, the man I spent 10 years studying and wrote my dissertation on, which, incidentally, I don't ever want to read or think about him again. Ten years was plenty. But he did say something that's helpful. This word of which I speak, he described it as the most tragic word in all the Bible. Indeed, he goes so far as to say it's the most tragic word in human language. 
The word of which I speak is the word lost. 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 Put it in any sentence and it spells trouble. A parent loses their child at the mall. Instant panic. A parent loses his child to waywardness, wandering, has left the faith. Instant heartbreak. A couple loses their hopes and dreams at the diagnosis of infertility. A couple loses their precious child to an unforeseen miscarriage. A widow in this church loses her husband to cancer. A widower in this church loses his wife to dementia. A friend loses his business to bankruptcy. Another friend loses everything to adultery. You fill in the blank, and in the wake of the word lost is trouble. And having said all of that, the next words I want you to hear, I plead you not hear them to be hyperbole, exaggeration, overstated. The way Jesus uses the word lost in Luke 15 is infinitely worse than all the examples I just shared. For when Jesus refers to the lost, he is not talking about mere physical, temporal lostness. It is a spiritual lostness he describes, a spiritual waywardness, like your child who is desperately seeking. All of you have a family member. All of you, I trust, have a family member right now that is in the far country, that is searching right now, that is wayward, that is longing, experimenting, trying to find something that will at last satisfy. It's that type of lostness with which Jesus speaks, this rebellious prodigal lostness. It's not just a financial bankruptcy that Jesus speaks of. It is a spiritual bankruptcy, utter ruin, utter inability. This is a type of bankruptcy that you might see typified in those 20-some-odd demented men who flew airplanes into the towers, the Pentagon, and that field in Pennsylvania some 20 years ago. It's that level of spiritual moral bankruptcy. Jesus is not just referring to mere death. He is referring to a spiritual, lasting, total death. Utter and complete separation. The type of spiritual death that you can't help but see best exemplified in some of those crazy New York Times best-selling books like The God Delusion or God Is Not Great or any of those other famed titles by atheists of our day. This is the measure of lostness that Jesus is addressing. So look back at the text with me. And when you see those words lost with all of their weight and freight, it should stun us, make us drop to our knees, for it is that type of deep 
dark, rebellious lostness that Jesus is trying to tell us he came to save. It is that level of darkness, that depth of depravity that Jesus came to redeem. I want you to see, this is not profound, but if you believe it, it'll profoundly change you. Hear what I believe to be the weight and thrust of this text. My friends, remember, don't forget that Jesus loves saving sinners. It's sinners that he came for. He came for we who see we're not worthy. He came for those of us who see it who know that when we read Luke 15, we can't help but see ourselves as the lost ones. Now, there's two types of folks in this room joining us online. There's those of you here today who see your sin. You know your guilt, and perhaps you're even wondering, is it too late? Is, could God be gracious to me? For those of you in this room that see it and hate it and are desperately wondering if the gospel's good news for you, these are tender words for you. I want you to see the manifold mercy of Jesus this day. But I suspect there are a great many in this room for which these words may not be tender but tough. For there are others in this room, and my word, I've been here. Instead of seeing your sin, you, you see others' sin. You see others' need. You, you see, you know their guilt, and you wonder if it's too late for them. If that's you, if you find yourself so easily pulled into the way and stream of the Pharisees, looking askance at those who are in sin and saying, pity you, I want you to see that we all stand on level ground this day and we all need to be reminded of the wonderful, merciful might of Jesus' great love for us. First thing I want you to see this day is, my friend, would you see his love for you? Four ways I want you to see his great love for you in this text. I pray this is an encouraging message for you, for those who are weary from sin in your life. Number one, I want you to see that he received you. Did you notice in verses one and two who Jesus is receiving? It says the tax collectors and sinners were all coming near to Jesus. Now, the tax collectors, they were the turncoat Jews. These were Jews that had been co-opted into the Roman government, and now they were extorting all of their fellow Jews. They were taking taxes, but taking more than they should so that they could keep a profit. They were hated. Moreover, the sinners were not, that's not reference to the general we're all sinners way we often use it. It's referring in particular to those most egregious sinners, those undesirables, those people that you're just like, you know, the ones that you, ju you just know they don't know the Lord. That's who this text is referring to. In other words, this is not a desirable bunch. And it says the Pharisees and scribes hated it. They didn't like that Jesus was receiving these types of people. And indeed, the text says that Jesus ate with them, which means it, it was the, probably similar to how we are today. It was one of the chief ways you could show love, welcome, reception, recognition, hospitality to another would be to eat with somebody, to bring them in. Now, I want you to look hard at verses one through two with me. 
Because if what transpired in those two verses, if that doesn't shock you, if it doesn't stun you, if that doesn't unnerve you, you are probably a lot like me. And you have been inoculated over the years to the unspeakable holiness of God. You have watered our Lord down to this sort of chummy friend who doesn't really care what you do and how you live. You have exchanged his transcendence for his eminence. And you have decided that God is a lot like you. And by the way, I'm talking about myself here. I'm not trying to stand in judgment. I am like this every day. Where I read that text, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense for Jesus to spend time with these folks. Until you're reminded that the testimony of the scripture is that every time sin enters the equation, separation occurs. As early as the primordial garden of Eden, when sin entered the garden, what's the first thing that happened? Adam and Eve were driven out. They must be separated from God. A flaming cherubim was put at the entrance to keep them from coming back. The rest of the Old Testament is basically a story of the Levitical sacrificial system giving a beautiful, amazing portrayal of how serious sin is and how holy God is. That we cannot come before his holiness. We need all of these measures of atonement to happen in between us. Indeed, we need a priest, a person to go between us and God in the Old Testament because we cannot go to him ourselves. This is the whole testimony of the Bible, which is why when you see the most miraculous word in all the Bible, grace, it should stun you because the full weight of grace is that God who is unspeakably holy has reconciled wicked, rebellious sinners to himself. He who rightly should keep his distance has come near. He has, as Paul in Colossians 1 and verse 21 said, he has done this. We who were alienated, hostile in mind, we who were doing evil deeds, Paul says, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what Jesus has done for us. And so just look anew with me at his great unconditional love for us. He saw the real you. He saw you in your deepest, darkest moment. He sees every dark, hidden crevice of your soul. He knows what you've looked at. He knows what you thought. He knows what you've done. He knows. And it is that worst version of you, that most embarrassing version of you, that is the version Jesus came to save. And if you add one more layer of stunning amazement to it, the point of this text is it that is the version of you that Jesus loves to save. Jesus loves saving sinners like you and me. And so do you see it? Do you see his great love for you? That he received you? I want you to see a second thing that the Pharisees didn't. Evidently, the Pharisees did not see this great amazing love of Jesus' reception of sinners. They stood in judgment of Jesus, so he tells them two parables. Two earthly stories with a spiritual, heavenly meaning. 
And in these stories, Jesus reminds us of three additional ways his love is so great for us. So mark these down. Not only should we be amazed by the fact that he received us, I want you to secondly see now that he sought us. He sought you. Just look with me, if you will, at verses 4 and verse 8. In verse 4, the first parable, it says, What man, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that's lost? So we have a shepherd who has lost one of his sheep, and he is going over hill and valley to go find that sheep. He's left all the ninety-nine, and he is off looking for the one. Okay, first story. Second story. There's a lady. She lost one of her coins, one of ten coins, the text says. That coin was a drachma, a Greek coin, which was basically one day's wage. And so ten silver coins was in all likelihood her life savings. So she lost a tenth of her life savings. Understandably, she's kind of frantic looking for it. So it says she lights a lamp because the houses in that day and time, generally speaking, had no windows. So she gotta, she's got to get some light going in that dark little abode. And then it says she sweeps the floor. Because the floors were covered with straw and debris. That was how the floors were, were made at that time. And so she is frantically searching for this coin. Shepherd looking for the sheep. Lady looking for the coin. Both of these are pictures of what Jesus has done for us. Which is just astounding in my judgment. In the same way, Jesus is saying, I have come and sought you. I have pursued you. I have sought my sheep. I have called my own. I pursued you when you didn't want to be sought. That's why the seeker-sensitive movement in Christianity is so insane, because the true seeker of the Bible is God. The scripture actually says that none is righteous, no not one, nobody understands, nobody seeks after God. None of us in our flesh will. God must do it. And he has come, these parables say, to Find us. And I want you to notice the way he is searching for us. He is searching for us personally. The shepherd doesn't send an emissary. He doesn't send a lowly other shepherd. He leaves the 99 and he goes himself looking for the sheep, picturing for us that it is God who does the saving. God pursued you. God came and found you. This searching is not just uh, personal, it's individual. He left the 99 and he was valuing you, which is just astonishing when you think about how wicked your soul is. Guys, I know me better than any of you. And even as one of your pastors, I am ashamed at the thoughts and things I've done over my life. My heart is dark like yours. And I am astonished that the Lord Jesus called me out of that darkness into wonderful light, opened my eyes, and he redeemed my wicked soul. He saved me. I have now tasted and seen that he is good. He saved me personally, individually. He sought me, my friends, and you relentlessly. Because if you'll notice in both of these parables, neither stop searching till they find it. The shepherd finds the sheep. The lady finds the coin. He will finish his good purposes. If God is after you, God is going to finish what he started. My friends, I pray you see that there is a good, loving, and gracious God who has received you and he sought you. Oh, praise Jesus that he is a good God who loves saving lost sinners like you and like me. That's the second thing. May I show you a third way that Jesus' love is great for us. Thirdly, I want you to notice what he does next in verse 5. What's he do with the sheep? After he finds the sheep, does he whip it and say, come on, let's go back? 
Does he find the sheep and put a noose around its neck and just pull it and say, come on, and drag it back to the fold? What happens next? He pulls that sheep, verse 5 says, and he puts its belly around the back of his neck, and he puts the sheep on his shoulders, and with one hand grabs his uh, front legs, and with one hand grabs his back legs, and he begins to walk with that uh, sheep on his shoulders. You've probably seen the famous statue of the Good Shepherd. It's in one of the Vatican museums, and it's in paintings all over Christian churches, maybe even in this church, where you'll see this shepherd bearing the weight of the sheep. And this is what God has done for you. I want you to see, thirdly, that he has not just received you and sought you. My friends, he is restoring you. He is sustaining you this moment. He is carrying you this moment. So feel this. So many of us in this room will gladly, openly attest that our salvation was a miracle. Praise God that he opened my eyes. I saw him. Praise the Lord. It's a miracle. But I want you to see the fact that you are a Christian this moment is just as much a miracle. The God who received you and sought you is the same God who is sustaining you and restoring you this moment, who is bearing you on his shoulders. He is keeping you. Jude 24 says, now to Jesus who is able to keep you from stumbling. It is Jesus who has kept you a Christian this moment. It is Jesus who has kept you from throwing it all away. It is Jesus, my friends, who is bearing you up. And this is good news for those of you that have quite a past. If you have come this day and you know that there is a lot of residue from your past life, you are living out the consequences of poor decisions from yesteryear. You know that your family, your life is not squeaky clean. And you love Jesus, you are seeking to follow him, you are seeing growth, but you just know it's not all there. These are tender good words for you. For God in Christ is carrying you this moment. He has borne you on his shoulders and he will sustain you, my friends, to the end. Number three, our God has not just received us, and sought us, I want you to see he is this moment restoring you, healing you, sanctifying you, making you new, strengthening and sustaining you. Praise God for the sustaining, restoring work of Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. That's number three. But let's look at one fourth and final way God's great love is shown us in Christ. Number four, do you notice what happens next in this text? After the lady finds the coin, after the shepherd finds the sheep, let's just put it this way. What would you do if you've just been horribly inconvenienced and you've had to go over hill and valley to go find this stinking sheep? Your day's messed up. You find the sheep. You drag its 70 to 80 pound weight back to the pen. What are you going to do next? Probably just throw the sheep in the pen and then kind of sulk around and go lay your head down on a rock somewhere and take a nap. If you're the lady, you've just torn apart your house that is your abode. You've torn it apart looking for this coin, and you finally found it. What might you be inclined to do in that moment? I, if you're anything like me, you'd probably be all frustrated and frazzled that your house is now a wreck, and you're just, you're just irritated. But the response of the shepherd and the response of the lady in these parables, which is a picture of God's relationship to us, is st stunning. 
For it says the man, the shepherd comes and he says, rejoice with me. The lady who finds that coin finds all of her neighbors and says, rejoice with me. For what Jesus is illustrating for us is by great amazement, when God saved my dark, wicked, rebellious soul and yours, at that moment, all of heaven and earth rejoiced. It says that God Almighty rejoiced at the fact that a lost sinner came to him. Oh, I wish I had time to preach the parable of the prodigal son, which is in the next few verses, where the father, typifying Jesus, the father stands there after that son had run away and finally came back. What does the father do? It says he reaches out with open arms and embraces his son and throws a party. For that is what God does at the salvation of a lost, wicked sinner like you and me. My word, it's unbelievable. It says in verse 10, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Meaning it's not just God who's rejoicing, all of heaven rejoices. So I just am inviting you to feel the full weight of these parables one final time. Jesus loved saving the worst version of you. Jesus rejoiced when he saved my rebellious, wicked heart. Have you forgotten, dear Christian, that the gospel is indeed good news? Have you forgotten his mercies? I pray that you would taste anew this day that God in Christ loves you dearly. He received you. He sought you. He is restoring you. And praise be to God, he is rejoicing over you. But there are two verses I've left on the table that we must attend to before we close the book. For in verses 7 and 10, Jesus changes his tune. He proclaims his gospel in the form of a parable, and then he calls for a response, which, as an aside, is how we ought to respond every time the gospel is proclaimed, which, by the way, it's proclaimed every Sunday faithfully in this pulpit, and every time it is, we all ought to respond. We all ought to hear the call of Christ. And so this day, may I conclude by giving you two ways we ought to respond to the call of Christ. See, first his love for you, and now lastly, I want you to see with me his call to you. Number one, his call to us is to repent. Look, if you will, at verse seven. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Metanoio. Repent, turn, change your mind. Jesus is saying, you must turn from your wicked, dark ways. In other words, Jesus is not presenting a cheap gospel. It's very easy to misinterpret glorious gospel, gracious parables like this and say, oh, okay, well, Jesus doesn't seem to care how I live. So I guess I ought to sin all the more so that grace may abound, which of course Paul says in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, by no means, don't do that. For every time Jesus presents the jewel of the gospel, every time he shows us the glories of God's grace and mercy, do you want to know what's coming right behind it? A call to repent. You remember the adulterous woman in the book of Mark who Jesus told all the people around her who were about to stone her, 
He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Everybody loves that story because it sounds like Jesus doesn't really care if you did that. That he is just a God of non-judgmental grace. The problem is if you just read the very next clause that comes out of his mouth, Jesus, after telling everybody who is without sin to be the one who cast the first stone, he looks to the adulterous woman and he says, now go and sin no more. Repent. Metanoio. Turn from your sin. So how then ought we repent, church? A couple ways. One, we probably ought to repent of our self-sufficiency, which you'll see in verse 7. Did you notice the sarcasm where in verse 7 Jesus says, unlike you people who need no repentance? He's joking, of course, when he says that, because who doesn't need repentance? Jesus is basically saying, you Pharisees, you're so self-sufficient, you think you don't need to repent. In fact, you think you're closer to God than anybody else, and what I'm trying to help you see is that you're far further than you realize. Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you need to repent. Kyler, you need to repent, not only of your self-sufficiency, you need to repent of your smug indifference towards lost people, which the Pharisees had. What I'm about to say, I say with trembling lips, for I, I stand indicted, condemned by it, more than anybody in this room. But I believe an implication of this text is that, my friends, your heart for the lost reveals your heart for God. In other words, my complacency, your indifference towards lost people, it's really not a discipline problem. It's not a circumstantial problem. It's not a personality problem. It's not a time problem or a priority problem. It's not a gifting problem. In the final analysis, it really is a heart problem. And Jesus' call is to repent and see that you need as much mercy as they do that we all desperately need the grace of God. Unlike they who think they need no repentance. My friends, I want you to see Christ's great call to you. Repent, and lastly and finally, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice! That's the refrain of the text. Rejoice with me, he says. Rejoice with me. How? How do you rejoice with me? Do you just do it by singing with John and the gang? How do you rejoice? How do we do this? Well, may I just suggest, submit a few ways we ought to rejoice with the shepherd and the lady and with Jesus and all creation. First, we ought to rejoice in his mercy to us. Here's one way you can do that. Begin today cultivating a culture of transparency and confession in your home. Do you openly confess sin? Do you ever confess sin to anybody? Do your children know that you are a sinner who needs the mercy of Jesus as much as they? Do you openly talk about your need for the Lord? Let me add another layer. You could cultivate not just a culture of confession. Why don't you cultivate a culture of testimony? Have your children ever heard you testify to how God saved you? Do your children know that mom and dad can't stop talking about how much Jesus has done for them? Have you shared this lately at all? 
Oh, may our homes, may our community groups, may this church be marked by a culture of people who transparently confess sin and transparently glory in the mercy of Jesus to us. For a lost, dying world will look in and see these people have what I need. They have received mercy. They do not stand over, they stand under the mercy of God. And the umbrella, the tent is large, it is wide. Come, taste and see of the mercy and grace of God. We ought to rejoice in his mercy to us. And finally, we ought to rejoice in his mercy to others, which I admit is most difficult. For who amongst us has not seen somebody out and about I'm talking about the kind of somebody that you know would probably never darken the doors of this church. The type of person where it's just, it's manifestly clear that they don't know the Lord. You get what I'm saying? And how quickly does your heart go to a posture of judgment, condemnation, and very quickly you start looking like the Pharisee in one of the other stories in the book of Luke where he starts saying, God, I thank you that I am not like these sinners. Do you ever find yourself when you see People soaked in sin? Do you find your heart breaking with compassion and saying, oh God, would you show them the mercy you've shown me? I often don't, which is why I need to plead that God would do that scrubbing work in my heart to see this anew. Oh, I pray, dear friends, that we would be slow to judge and quick to compassion and forgiveness. That we would very quickly say, I forgive because Jesus has forgiven me much. Oh, I will not keep a record of wrongs because God has done an unspeakable work of mercy and grace in my life. I am a grace case. God has received me. He sought me. Oh, praise God. He is rejoicing over me and restoring me this moment. Oh, I pray, my friends, that all of us this day would repent and rejoice. Just this past Tuesday, I stood in a Catholic church outside Kansas City, Missouri, with my family before me and my grandfather's casket immediately in my, to my left. I was the only family member invited to address the service. If you're familiar with Roman Catholicism, it was a Catholic service led by a Catholic priest who, though well-intentioned, I trust, um, he said some things in the service before I got up to speak that had me so antsy, I felt like Clint Presley. Have you ever seen him up front where he like can't control himself and he's about to hop out of the pew? That's how I felt the whole time. For this priest said, my grandfather was in heaven because he had lived a good life. He had been faithful, which is manifestly not true, by the way. And so when it was my turn to come up, I believe the family and the priest thought I was just gonna come up and share like a brief anecdote. Of course, if you know me by now, I don't know how to talk. All I know how to do is preach. I have like one tone, no matter what setting I'm in, it's always a preaching tone. So I got up there, and as I got up there and stared at my grandfather's casket, his final words kept repeating in my mind, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And I was compelled in that moment, having not premeditated truly what I was gonna share, I was compelled in that moment to respectfully but confidently 
declare to my beloved family and friends in that gathering the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus' grace is greater than all our sin. That thanks to Jesus, death is not hopelessly final. That my grandfather's dying words were some of the most profound words he ever uttered. For when he declared, I'm not worthy, he was joining a chorus of all creation with stammering, dying lips. He joined a chorus declaring, I'm not worthy, but Jesus Christ is. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, my friends, is worthy of all glory and honor and wisdom and power and might and blessing. Jesus is worthy. We are not, which is why, as followers of Jesus Christ, we glory in the simple but profound truth. My friends, Jesus loves saving sinners like you and me. Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed, as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, there will be men down here at the front who would love nothing more than to pray with you and to help you see that which they've seen, to help you know that which they know. So you come as John leads us in a song and you respond. For every time the gospel is proclaimed, we ought, we indeed we must respond. For some of you, that means you need to confess and repent of your sin. For some of you, it means you need to plead that God would grant you a heart to rejoice in his mercy, to refresh you anew. Oh, I pray this day that if you remember anything, that you would remember, my friends, that the gospel is unspeakably good news. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, oh God, that you are gracious and kind. You are merciful, compassionate, and you see us for who we are and nevertheless love to save wicked sinners like us. So we glory in you, O oh God. We praise you for Jesus, and we long for that day when we will join the chorus of all creation and cry, we are not worthy, but you, O oh God, are worthy of all glory, honor, wisdom, majesty, might, and blessing. In Jesus' matchless name, we pray this. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet as you do. John will sing. The invitation is to come.